Good morning, and welcome to the house of the Lord. I am happy to be back this morning and to finish what we started a couple of Sundays ago, and welcome to those of you that made the first trip to Israel with Jimmy and Susie, and um, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to a single verse, Isaiah chapter 37, verse 31, and as you're turning to that, let me mention to you that uh, the, for those of you that missed it, the last time I was here two weeks ago, we considered the question of the condition of the institutional American church and that uh, we've got lots of confusion in our culture today that tracks back to what's happening in our churches. And the crux of that presentation was a clergy survey about what percentages of ordained ministers and mainline denominations no longer embrace the authority of the Scripture. And several of you wanted a copy of that survey, and I did further research on it and found the source of it, and I put it all on a sheet of paper on this front pew down here, and if you want a copy of that clergy survey along with where it came from, you are welcome to come get one after the service. Now, before I read the scripture, I have a humorous story that I can tell you about Jimmy Young. Would you like to hear that story? You would. Okay, now he will never tell you this story, but being one of his close friends, I can probably get by with it. And the joke is on Jimmy. After Jimmy and Susie had been married for about 25 years, one Saturday afternoon they were having a heart-to-heart talk, and they were talking about how much they loved each other and loved being married to each other. And at one point in the conversation, Susie said, Now, Jimmy, there's one favor I need to ask of you. Underneath our bed there is a shoebox. And that's my shoebox, and I need for you to not look into my shoebox. I don't want you to see what's in this box. And he promised her that he would not do that. So soon after the conversation ended, she took off to the grocery store, and Jimmy's curiosity got the best of him. So he goes and he pulls the shoebox out from under the bed, and he finds six eggs and $2,000. And he's curious what this is all about. But he knows he's in trouble because he looked where he shouldn't have. So he puts it all back. Susie gets home and he sits her down and he says, honey, I got to come clean. I just couldn't handle it curiosity-wise. So I looked in the shoebox and you know how Susie can be. She says, Jimmy, how could you? And she finally calmed down and then he said, well, Susie, tell me, what were the six eggs? And she said, well, In the 25 years I've been listening to your preaching, every time you preached a dud sermon, I put an egg in the box. (laughs) And so he's thinking, 25 years, six bad sermons, that's pretty good. And then he says, well, Susie, where did the $2,000 come from? And she said, oh, I hate to have to tell you, but every time I got a dozen, I sold them. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I didn't tell you that joke. Okay, (laughs) Isaiah 37, verse 31. This, This verse will set up our remarks today. It says, And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. If you can, underline that verse in your Bibles, please. It's a powerful, memorable verse. Isaiah 37, verse 31. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward 
and bear fruit upward. Lord, stir our hearts through this text and through this concept of the remnant today. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, my remarks today, like last Sunday or two Sundays ago, will be screen-driven. There's a lot of information I'm going to try to share with you. I'm going to move through it swimmingly, and and maybe better just to follow what you see up here rather than trying to take notes. Some of it you'll be able to, but notice there's a, a link on the slide that if you want to get this information from the one done two weeks ago and this one, you'll be able to do that. So last week we looked at the, 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 this particular verse which says, the sons of Issachar were men who understood the times and they had knowledge of what Israel should do. God blessed a certain tribe in the days of Israel with peculiar insight into the situation of the Israelites and along with their insight gave them wisdom of what they should do. Now what we're trying to do in this two-part series is understand the times in which we live and then gain from that knowledge and wisdom as far as what we should do. And so what we concluded the last time I was here is that in terms of the times in which we live, this is the best way to describe it. We're living in an age of deep secularism that is aided and supported as opposed to confronted by an apostate institutional church. And if you want data to support this proposition, all the information I went over the last time I was here will help you with that. Now, in contrast to this realization that we're living in an age of, age of deep secularism aided by an apostate church, in Ezekiel 6.8, God says this. He says, however, I will save a remnant. I will save a remnant. Now, the question we asked last time was, what is going on in our day and age? And the question we're answering today is, and how is God at work in our day and age? God is saving a remnant. Now, what I want to do is take you into this dynamic concept today and help you understand the wisdom and insight that it gives us as far as what is happening in the world today and how God is at work. So just follow along, please. And let's start, first of all, by defining the word remnant. The word remnant is a dynamic concept. It runs throughout the Scripture, as you will see in just a moment, from Genesis to Revelation. It is defined as what is left of a community after it undergoes a catastrophe, upheaval, or a transition. And these all occurred at various stages in Israel's history, and they're still occurring today. The word remnant is used approximately 90 times throughout the Scripture, primarily in the prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah. And it is a word that has six different word stems, but you can boil them down to these three fundamental nuances. The first nuance is the the word remnant means what remains, what's left over or left behind or the after part. Then secondly, it means what has escaped from or uh, was able to flee from as a fugitive or to be delivered from. And then thirdly, what what the remnant refers to those that survive or were spared, again, a catastrophe or some cataclysmic event. Now, the uh, International Bible Encyclopedia defines there are three categories for the remnant or gives us three categories for the remnant to help us understand it. There is an historical remnant which refers to survivors of a physical catastrophe. Then there is a faithful remnant that distinguishes those who have a genuine trust in God during times when there are lots of people who do not. And then thirdly, there is the eschatological remnant, which refers to what it means to be purified and saved from the final end-time judgment. So these three words you will see now illustrated in the Bible. 
Now, these three uses of the word remnant, I'm going to review the overview scripturally for you, and you'll see how the, the use of the word remnant fits into these three categories. Now, let me give you seven examples from the scripture, starting in Genesis, going all the way to Revelation, in which God worked in a way in which times became hard and bad, like they are today, but God saved a remnant. So follow along. First example is found in the, in the, uh, the event of the great flood. In Genesis 6, it tells us that the wickedness of man became so great on earth that the violence of people toward one another grieved the Lord to the point where he became sorry that he even made man. And in response to that grief, God decided to clean the slate, destroy the human race, and start over. And so he brought a great flood upon the earth, a universal flood, that destroyed all the humans who lived on the earth at that time except one man. That man was the remnant from the great flood, and of course his name was Noah, and his wife and three sons and their wives represented the remnant that were saved during the time of the great flood. The second incident occurs in the book of Genesis, about 15 chapters later, in which not the whole earth, but certain cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, became exceedingly wicked, and morality-wise, they became so far off the rails that it stirred the heavens, and God sent angels down to look into the moral condition of the people who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, concluded that he would destroy those cities in the same way he did the human race previously with the flood, and so he moved to do that by sending angels down who examined the situation and, in a sense, reported back to God that, yes, it's as bad as it looks, and they destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone, except the remnant of Lot and his two daughters. Later in the book of Genesis, whoops, let me not get lost here on my clicker. Later in the book of Genesis, Genesis 45, you're familiar perhaps with the story of Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his own brothers. Through a long and winding road, he was then elevated to a position of authority, second in command in Egypt. And it was there that he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and understood that there were, there were coming seven years of, of, of plenty and then seven years of famine. And so he, he engineered the, the saving up of lots of grain that would uh, keep the human race alive during the famine years that would soon come after that. And then after 30 years, Joseph's rotten brothers showed up, the ones who'd sold him into slavery. He recognized them. They didn't recognize him. How would they recognize him? They left him in a pit. And so Joseph does battle with his brothers and ends up disclosing himself to them, brings his father Jacob and his brother Benjamin down to Egypt where Jacob dies. And after Jacob is dead, his brothers were afraid that he was going to take vengeance upon him. And in response to their fear, he said, look, what you did to me, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And God placed me down here so that the earth out of the earth, a remnant would be saved who would be kept alive, and you are part of that remnant, brothers. So in the book of Genesis, you see this cycle of a natural catastrophe and God saving a remnant of his faithful people. It keeps going. In the um, book of Kings, this is several hundred years later, the nation of Israel fell into a state of deep apostasy, and many of them began to worship false gods. The principal god they worshiped was Baal, and so Elijah, the mighty prophet, called the prophets of Baal together to meet him on the top of Mount Carmel, and we were going to determine, or they were going to determine, who the one true God was. So after the, the God Baal did not respond to the altar of the prophets of Baal, Elijah built an altar, God came down out of heaven, consumed it with fire, 
and it was, he proved himself to be the one true God, and then all the prophets of Baal were destroyed, and Queen Jezebel took issue with Elijah and threatened to take his life, and so Elijah runs off, and he hides, and he prays, and he says, God, I'm kind of feeling alone here, not much support among anyone else. Everybody else seems to be following Baal. I'm the only one who's following you. And the Lord says to him, not true, Elijah, but in fact, I have 7,000 people. Notice the specific number. God says, I have 7,000 in Israel that I've left as a remnant who will not follow the prophet Baal. So during that time of apostasy, many centuries ago, God saved a remnant. And then the most famous point in which God saved a remnant in the Old Testament was after the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Sumerians and never heard from again, never established again. 150 years later, the Babylonians were, took the southern kingdom, Judah, into captivity, and they hauled off the vast majority of the population of Jerusalem to Babylon, but they only stayed 70 years because God said, after 70 years, I'm going to save a remnant. And God saves a remnant of the Jews and brings them back to Jerusalem. They rebuild, they rebuild the wall, the city, and the temple. And Israel uh, is once again reestablished, and 400 years later, the Messiah comes. So God brings a remnant back from the Babylonian captivity to keep the covenant of his people alive. And then two New Testament examples. In Romans 11, 9 through 11, Paul deals with the Jewish question. And he responds to the inquiry among people of that day, which was this. If Jesus was the Messiah for the Jews, why did the Jews, his own people who had been given so much, reject him? And Paul clarifies that within national Israel, there is spiritual Israel. National Israel are those who are Jews nominally, but spiritual Israel are those who are Jews sincerely, and that God has saved a remnant out of the Jewish nation, which now begins to include us as Gentiles. And the grafting of the Gentiles into the covenant of God began to happen when the Jews rejected their Messiah, and we are part of that remnant 20 centuries later. And then there's one more example of the remnant, and that is the end times final judgment in Revelation 12. Now, you and I can't see this right now, but in the heavenlies, in the spiritual places, there's a huge battle going on between the forces of good and evil. But in the days of Revelation, the end times of human history on earth, that battle is going to come out of the heavens, down upon the earth, and it's going to be fought on earthly soil, battle of Armageddon, and the dragon which represents Satan will do, do battle with the seed of the woman, which is the church. And it says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, it says, the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the remnant of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, what you can see from this very painfully quick overview is how the remnant concept is a thread that runs all the way through the Old Testament and even into the New, well past our time. Now, let's take this concept and develop it a little bit further. What I'm going to do is give you some analogies, and these are word pictures that will help you understand how God is saving a remnant today. The first image is that of a lump of dough. Back in the day, when lumps of dough were kneaded and cooked, whenever you wanted to add to the number of lumps of dough that you had, you would take a little pinch of the original dough, and then you would take it and put it and mix it in with some additional dough, and you would make um, more than one lump of dough. But you would, it, you would take the pinch from the original 
and you would make duplicates. And here's the explanation for how this works, and this ties into the remnant. In the ancient Near East, when making bread, a lump of fermented dough from a previous mixing was added to new flour and water, which then multiplied throughout the batch and caused it to rise up and swell. In this manner, a small portion or a remnant of the original dough endured and created a new batch with the same characteristics of the original. Now, this is how God is working. He's saving a remnant from one group of people, preserves it, and puts it into a new group of people, and the imprint of the original continues from one to the next. Here's a second analogy. This is what's called a stacked hourglass. Notice that what you have here is a picture of an hourglass that widens, narrows, widens, and narrows. It's cyclical. Now, what is the meaning of this as far as the remnant goes? Down throughout redemptive history, the purposes of God expand and constrict. Similarly to an hourglass, which moves from narrow, wide to narrow to wide. Numerous cycles of expanding and constricting occur throughout the Old Testament until the captivity in which Israel and Judah are taken prisoner in a foreign land. After 70 years, the narrow remnant returns to the land and the expanding season of the cycle commences again. Now, one more analogy, and this is kind of my own concept, and that is you can see the fence here is that where you have the fence post, the fence is high, but then it sags in between until it's pulled up by another fence post, and you see it looping from one fence post to the next. Now, what does this mean as far as the remnant goes? Another way to think of the remnant is like a fence whose height is highest at the post and then sags in between. The posts are like times of revival, and the sags in between are when the fervency of revival wanes. Though the work of the Lord sags, it never goes completely away or runs into the ground, but extends until another revival lifts it up back unto its peak. Now, let's use these word analogies, and let me create for you now steps in a cycle. If you want to take notes, you can probably write this part down. But watch the way this remnant cycle operates down through history, and you will be able to identify through this cycle where we are today in the United States. The first step in the cycle is fruition. This is where the gospel goes forth, people embrace it genuinely, and gospel influence is expansive. We've had periods in our history in the United States in which Great periods of revival and fruition have existed. But then, soon after, complacency and lukewarmness sets in. And then what happens is the gospel influence begins to wane. Soon after that, there is the onset of apostasy in which people once believed something, step back from it, and no longer believe it. And that's what the word apostasy means, to step back from what you originally believed And then what happens is the influence of godliness displaces the influence of the gospel. Does that sound familiar? That's kind of where we are in our culture today. But we haven't hit bottom yet. Notice, the next step is that this downhill slide hits a nadir or a low point. And when it hits the low point in the form of disintegration, collapse, or judgment, we bottom out the cycle. But then notice what happens when we bottom out is that a faithful remnant survives by the grace of God. And then this remnant rebirths a movement of God by which from the root of the remnant grows a trunk, branches, leaves, and fruit. And then where we are is back to the cycle of fruition. 
we're back to the place where the gospel remnant once again flourishes. Now, where are we in this cycle in terms of our history? Uh, My guess is we're somewhere between step five, which is the influence of godlessness displaces the influence of the gospel, and we hit the nadir. Have we hit bottom yet as a culture? I don't know. I hope we have, but possibly we haven't. So somewhere we're in between those two cycles, and what we're looking to do is for this to bottom out and then to once again move forward. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a time lapse. And you're about to see in 10 seconds a series of slides that would normally cover about 150 to 200 year period. So you'll have to follow it along as it goes. Now here's the cycle of how it works, this concept of a remnant. God calls a covenant people to himself, and these people are faithful to him from the heart. They follow him, love him, serve him, and obey him. But then the covenant people who are just nominally committed to the Lord, they begin to pull back from God, but a remnant of that covenant people remains faithful to the Lord. So there are nominally lots of people, a part of this covenant people, who aren't fully committed to the Lord. And then what happens is that this covenant people who are not fully following the Lord begin to drift. And they begin to stray away from the Lord, and then they begin to follow after other gods, and they separate out from God's covenant people, and then what happens is they disappear. And what we're left with is a much smaller remnant than what we had before. But God's not finished yet. Watch this. This remnant then explodes into a new movement of God. So when the cycle is finished, God has in effect purged his people of all those who are not sincerely committed to him and to his law and to his word, purges those out, saves a faithful remnant, and then through that remnant births a new powerful movement of God. You can trace these movements throughout history. The the, the country of England, it's seen very clearly. So, what I'm trying to do this morning is to give you some hope. God isn't finished yet, and we'll get to this in just a minute. Now, here's the best news I can give you this morning. Those of you that are struggling with, wow, things have really gotten bad in our world. When is this going to, when are we, when are we going to hit bottom? Well, here's the thing you want to keep in mind, is that secularism, which has taken over our culture, always runs its course because it's vacuous and it's empty of the truth. So eventually, secularism is going to burn out, just like it did in the early 1900s after we had two world wars and a severe depression. The optimism of the liberals that we could create a utopian if we just educated people crashed and burned. And so notice what's happening. To put it simply, experiments with secularized religion have generally failed. Religious movements with beliefs and practices that are dripping with reactionary supernaturalism have always succeeded. So the influence of the gospel will eventually take over the influence of secularism. So here are these three conclusions I want you to keep in mind, and this will give you some hope. Where we are in the world today is here. We live in a world that is postmodern and secular. However, a reaction against secularism is resulting in the rise of a distinct group of people who were longing for a supernatural understanding of the world. People have bought what secularism has to sell, They realize that it's not delivering what it promises, and now they're looking for something different and better. 
So consequently, point number three, we're dealing with a paradoxical situation in which the world is secular, but longing for a supernatural spirituality. That's what you have at this church. That's what we have to offer a world that's steeped and immersed in secularism. We have the supernatural worldview that they're looking for. Now, here's the hopeful conclusion. Last time I was here, it was pretty heavy. But I promised you, I'd bring you back something that would lift your spirit. The significance of the biblical teaching on the remnant is that the remnant of the current generation, that's you and me, become the seeds of a new movement of God in future generations. Just hold on. Hold fast. God isn't finished yet. Now, let me give you some simple conclusions here that are what I call practical implications of the remnant. First of all, how, what, what kind of a stance are we supposed to take in a world that's just being run over by secularism? Well, first of all, I think we need what I call heads up and not head down evangelicalism. What I mean by that is, I talk to people all the time that are just caught in what I call defeatism. They've just kind of given up. And it seems like we can't stem the rising tide of godlessness in our day, and so it's kind of over. And that defeatism is not necessarily despair, but, it's, but, it's, but it is a, a negative, hopeless kind of perspective. And what I want to challenge you this morning is, that place, if you're there, is not of God. We should not be locked into defeatism. God isn't finished yet. Through the remnant concept, he's still very much at work. So that should offer to us gratitude and hope. We are not to be living underneath the gloom and doom perspective that is our natural tendency. So first of all, we need to deal with our defeatism. And if that's where you are, you you need to understand, you need to deal with that. That's not where God wants you to be. That's not of the Lord. The second thing that I think we should do in terms of how we should stand in today's world, along with dealing with our defeatism, we need to deal with our retreatism. What I mean by that retreatism is that we've sort of retreated back onto our church campuses under the pressure of the tolerance gospel of our day, and we basically shut down on our efforts to try to advance the gospel out on the culture. Personal evangelism today is all but lost, even in evangelical churches. That's what I do for a living. And when I first started doing evangelism in my church, I called several churches and said, I'm starting an evangelism program in my church. How do you do it in your church? And this is a response I got. We don't have an evangelism program in our church. We don't know how to do evangelism in our church. And when you figure it out, would you call us back? And I'm like, well, you're not much help. And they're like, well, it's kind of where it is. So I saw the pattern of this retreatism. So we've circled our wagons and we're back on our Christian reservations and we're not advancing the gospel. In other words, the church is playing way too much defense. Way too much defense. And what I mean by that is, we're, def- we're deflecting the goddesses of the world just trying to keep from 
becoming drawn into it. And we have to stay separate. But we're also called by God to reach that very same group of people that we're trying to stay separate from. It's a dynamic tension. So along with being on defense, we got to learn to play offense. The church has got to start playing offense again. And we've been in a defensive posture for decades because all we had to do was build beautiful buildings like the one I serve at and the one you got here, and people will come. But you know something? They don't come anymore. We have to go to them. So we have to address our defeatism. Get your head up. We have to determine our retreatism. We have to, re- uh, we have to fix that. Let's start playing offense. And how do we de- deal with our defeatism and our retreatism? Two suggestions. Number one, we have to recover the lost art and finesse of gospel persuasion. For years, we've been teaching people in churches how to share the gospel confrontationally. And I can tell you who's one who's out on the street quite a bit, places like Piedmont Park in Atlanta, confrontational evangelism only builds resistance. What wins people is not confrontationalism, but it's persuasion. We have the truth. The truth always wins. We've got to learn how to put the truth in language that communicates to a secular, godless culture. So we have, to, we have to once again understand the dynamics of winsome, proactive persuasion. And I'd love to talk to you about that for another hour, but I don't have time. Maybe somehow you guys can come back to it. But along with persuasion, one more thing we've got to learn, and that is we've got to learn innovation. Along with being persuasive, we've got to learn how to be innovative. And this is what I mean by that. What worked in our modern culture no longer works in the postmodern culture? We got a bunch of paradigms that are old and outdated, and trust me, they don't, they don't work anymore. And now what we've got to do is rethink how to do them and do them in a way that communicates to a secular culture. Now let me illustrate this point, and I need for you to just listen to me for another two to three minutes, and then we're going to be on our way. In the 1900s, when the liberal gospel rooted in mainline denominationalism, a polarization occurred between the evangelicals and the liberals and the moderates and the neo-orthodox, in which the liberals said, you evangelicals don't minister to the total person. We're going to start doing social action, which eventually developed into a social gospel, and we're going to take care of people's physical needs. And evangelicals said, well, if you're going to take care of their bodies, how do you help them if you don't? take care of their souls. So we're going to take care of their spiritual needs. And we developed this polarization in which the evangelicals focus on people's spiritual needs and the liberals focus on their physical needs. And just as in all situations in which you do an either or, it always catches up with you. Let me tell you something, brethren, that paradigm is changing. There's a middle ground in which the churches, evangelical churches today, need to remember that we take care of the total person their spirit and their soul and their body. Now, let me illustrate that. There was a dissertation written years ago that studied the missionary strategies of two short-term missionary teams who went to Thailand to minister to the people in that culture and to win them to the Lord. Now, listen closely to what happened. One group of people went over to Thailand, and they, they were called the blessers. 
And with that, what they did was they went to help people in tangible, practical ways in any way that they could. In other words, if they helped rake leaves or painted houses for widows, wherever there was human need, they decided they would go and try to meet the human needs of the people in Thailand. They were called the blessers. Then there was another short-term mission group called the converters. And they chose as a strategy not to address the physical needs of people at all, but just to address the needs of the soul and then try to convert people by sharing the gospel. So they both came and they went. Now let me ask you a question. Which of these two groups of people end up winning the most people to the Lord? Well, let me inform you, the blessers won the most people to the Lord. Now let me ask you this question. What race ago did the blessers win more people to the Lord than the converters, the evangelists, did? Are you ready for this? The blesser group won 50 times more people to the Lord than the converters did. In other words, they had more people come to the Lord by a ratio of 50 to 1. Now, here's what's developed. Here's the paradigm that's emerging now in place of the old outdated paradigm. And that is, if we're going to care for people, we have to care for the total person. We must love the total person, who they are and where they are. And then as we do that, we bring the gospel into that relationship, and that's how people are converted. It's no longer either or, it's both and. Now, I'll stop here. I've said enough. And I'm just going to ask you to wrestle with this and think about this. But if we're going to be effective in trying to reach the secular culture, old paradigms have got to go, new ones have got to come. Handle our defeatism address our retreatism, move toward persuasion, and become masters of innovation. That's what I'm doing at my church in Atlanta. And over the last five years, we've seen 100 people converted from every background you can imagine, starting with atheists, Hindus, Buddhists, Unitarians. People are coming to the Lord. That's what I'm doing. And I just commend this to you for your consideration. Now, one final thought, and I'm on my way back to Atlanta, and that is this. Let me show you one passage of Scripture. In Isaiah 6, it says, when God is talking to Isaiah, when he calls him, he says, and he said, go and tell this people. And I said, how long am I supposed to tell them, Lord? And he said, until all the cities are devastated and without inhabitant, yet there will be a tenth portion in it, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, and the holy seed is in the stump. Now notice that this, this tree is devastated and all that's left is the stump. But notice what's in the holy notice what's in the stump? The holy seed. And what is that referring to? Look at this picture. That little stem you see growing, it says, Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots it will bear. Who is that stem shooting forth from the stump? It is Jesus. And where Jesus is ever lifted up, no matter how secular or atheistic or godless a culture is, Jesus said, I will draw all men, women, and children unto myself. That's where we stand. That's what we do. And that's what your pastor does. And that's why this church has grown from a few hundred to several hundred. 
That's what he does, and he's still doing it. Keep at it. But at the same time, understand where we are in history. Let's understand our times, and may God give us knowledge of what we should do. Lord, thank you for the remarkable capacity of your word to stir our hearts, to identify those pockets of anxiety and hopelessness and fear, and to overturn those, turn those over into pockets of joy and hope and gratitude. Also, Lord, let us not be despondent, but let us be inspired to press on with all that you're calling us to do, and may you guide us from this day forward in the specifics of how this should find expression in this church, in my church, and all the churches that are holding fast to you. We offer this time up now to you, Lord, in the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said,